Support for this podcast comes from the Florida Atlantic University College of Business, home to over 8,000 students, seven departments, six centers, and an impressive offering of interdisciplinary and professional development programs taught by the college's world-class faculty. Learn more at business.fau.edu. I'm Jen Mullins. And I'm Ryan Swano, and this is what's happening at FAU Business. This is part three in our series of podcasts about the coronavirus, and we're again joined by FAU's Dr. Jennifer Atanito. To recap, Dr. Atanito is an instructor and researcher in FAU's Health Administration Program, which is part of the larger management programs department at the FAU College of Business. She holds a doctorate in public health and has performed research on subject matters like the HIV virus. She has extensive training in epidemiology and disease prevention and is also on the curriculum committee for the FAU Center for Emergency Management. In this third episode, we discuss public health systems and the challenges they are facing while trying to combat the coronavirus. If you're interested in learning more about the health administration program at FAU Business, visit business.fau.edu health. And if you missed the first two episodes in this podcast series, you can find them on our YouTube channel by searching FAU Business while on YouTube. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Dr. Atenito. Thanks for joining us again for this third episode. Thanks. It's good to be back again. So we know that we've been hearing that the main symptoms of coronavirus have been fever and dry cough, but have any additional symptoms come up lately that are sort of adding to this symptom list? Well, those are still the main initial symptoms. There are a ton of other symptoms people have reported up to uh, gastrointestinal problems and aches and pains. And um, of course, the worst possible is the shortness of breath being the most, you know, most severe symptom. About 80%, I'm going to say known cases because obviously we still don't know, um, 80% are supposed to be about mild to moderate. But what I think is important is that it's not like mild or moderate like a cold would be, but mild or moderate meaning you don't need oxygen. (laughs) So... So there are a a wide range of symptoms, but yeah, the fever and the cough and even people with mild and moderate symptoms will get some shortness of breath. Some people don't have any symptoms. Some have just the the fever. Some have just the coughing. The newest, uh, of course, is this loss of smell and taste. And I thought that was anecdotal at first, but it turns out that about 30% of cases are reporting uh, loss of smell and taste early in the course of the disease. And so it's kind of interesting because that can serve as a screening tool right now when we don't have the, the test available for everyone. Is shortness of breath considered a, is that an emergency situation like where you have to basically contact your doctor right when you start experiencing that shortness of breath? It's a range. Um, so it really depends on the severity. You can have some shortness of breath and not need supplemental oxygen. For example, I have asthma, right? And so I know what shortness of breath feels like, and it doesn't always feel like I need an emergency room. I can deal with it at home. Um, so it really depends on the level of severity. If you really can't catch your breath, you don't feel like you're getting oxygen, you you just can't get any any breath in, then of course, yeah, it's an emergency at that point. But the even the emergency rooms are screening out people who say they have shortness of breath, but you can give them an inhaler or a nebulizer and it can be managed at home. Okay. How does a hospital switch from normal everyday operations to more of a pandemic response and treatment? Well, I'd like to start that by at least saying, because you've asked me a lot of 
different questions in these in the series. And the information I'm providing, of course, it, everything's changing so quickly um, with this this new pandemic that I'd like to, you know, just preface it by saying this information's changing changing quickly. So what I tell you now may be different if you ask me tomorrow. And you know, as far as hospital operations are concerned, I talked to an adjunct professor that we use in the uh, health administration programs, Chantal Lacante, and she's the retired CEO of Joe DiMaggio Children's Hospital. I wanted to make sure that my information was accurate, so I wanted to credit her. But as far as the answer to that, both the Joint Commission and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid they both require that all hospitals have an annual evaluation of their emergency response plans um, for whatever that that particular location deems are the top three to five potential threats for the year. Okay, so every place is different. Like we don't have wildfires, so that might not be a threat that we're going to put as much time into preparing for, but it is required on a federal level for hospitals. They're required to have detailed plans prepared and run drills very frequently. Some are weekly, some are monthly, some are annually. And then throughout the nation, all hospitals and emergency responders and health departments and others, they're all trained in what they call incident command procedures, and even I'm trained in this, believe it or not. The language and the basic structure of incident command is consistent wherever you go, and so it is a common language that's spoken in, in healthcare and emergency response. And then when a hospital moves into response mode, when they say this is not a drill, incident, first they have to identify an incident commander, and that's usually somebody who's well-respected from upper management, and they create space that's going to be the command center. And then they appoint officers who are going to be responsible for public communication and safety and logistics and finance, et cetera. All of those, those sections are designated in advance. Um, the response plans are very redundant in a good way, meaning just because you're counting on your phones to work, you're going to have backup plans for radios as well. And they're going to prepare for even the most improbable emergencies. So hospitals are much more prepared than kind of you'd even imagine. Emergency response in hospitals rely heavily on very clear, transparent communication up and down the chain constantly. The the frontline runners at the ground level are communicating up the chain their needs and status to department heads, and then they're communicating with the state and the federal government, and then back down the chain again. And so no hospital really works in isolation. They become this global network, and they're all really communicating the same language. In Florida, we've, I don't know if it's lucky, because of hurricanes, we've better prepared in some ways. Um, because we've had to step into response mode more frequently. But this particular virus has really tested our responses. And it, it came on much faster and more intensely than anybody ever expected. So as much as you can prepare, you don't always know exactly what's going to uh, hit you. I'm curious, does the pandemic switch, does that touch each and every hospital medical staff personnel? Like, is that felt from the very top of the hospital all the way down through all the medical personnel that work at a particular hospital? That's a good question. Um, yes, <laughs> it does. Wow. Um, yeah, training training happens at every level and everyone has to be prepared to, to varying degrees. Obviously, the need for, for meal preparation or janitorial services is going to be different. So the training is going to be different, but everyone has to have some, have some degree of training in the, in 
preparation. Why are we hearing that hospitals don't have enough life-saving gear to combat the virus? Well, that is unfortunately true, especially in places like New York right now. There's a shortage of gloves and gowns and shields and masks, you name it. But the most concerning is the shortage of ventilators to accommodate if you have a large influx of patients who can't breathe independently. And the that is the most concerning because those can't be manufactured quickly. Um, they're very expensive, and we even have a shortage of a shortage of respiratory therapists to operate the machinery. So even if you get the machinery, you still have to know that you have the personnel. I read one report that said some wealthy people are actually attempting to buy their own ventilators at fifty thousand dollars a piece. So wow, <laughs> yeah. Also concerning really is that we don't have an adequate number of hospital beds. In the U.S., we have about 2.8 hospital beds per thousand people, which is very few compared to a lot of other countries. For example, China has 4.3 beds per thousand. France has 6.5. And South Korea has 12 beds per thousand. So you can see ours is really low. But in terms of, at least in terms of beds, that's a result of policies that we've established that have uh, unintended side effects. So we're in an expenditure crisis, right, in healthcare. And a lot of our policies have been established to cut costs. And so, for example, we have what are called certificate of needs laws, and those restrict the growth of physical hospital space and even purchase of equipment in order to curtail spending. And that's left us short of beds at a time like this. And We've also shifted a lot of our care from inpatient to outpatient in order to reduce expenditures, which is good. It has cut costs, but unfortunately, here we are now with not enough inpatient space. These shortages that we're seeing aren't really for a lack of warning. Um, The CDC runs simulation models on outbreaks and pandemics all the time. So the federal government has been apprised of this possibility. And infectious disease experts have warned of this possibility as well. If you get a chance, look up a guy named Larry Brilliant, and I recommend everyone does, and watch his TED Talk. I actually require that my student that my students watch this. Um, He's an epidemiologist who was directly involved with the eradication of smallpox. And he's watched the evolution of these coronaviruses for a long time and figured this was just a matter of time. Now, I want to say that the this ignorance of the warnings is really due to optimism and hope. And I think it is. I think for the most part, it is. If you haven't experienced this before, you're going to assume it'll never happen. But ignoring the potential problem has gone on for a very long time, not just this administration. But more recently, we've cut, made cuts to the CDC budget. The pandemic response unit was eliminated in 2018. Hospital preparedness program was chiseled away over, yeah, over a long time, over a decade. So hopefully we can make corrections and learn quickly. Are there any historical precedents for the U.S. health system combating a pandemic like the coronavirus? Yeah, there are many. There are a lot of different, uh, <laughs> a lot of different precedents, and each one uh, provided different lessons. So you've probably heard a lot about the 1918 Spanish flu. We're referring to that a lot right now. There were 50 million deaths around the world, and uh, it was handled largely through behavioral interventions, of course, because they nobody knew that the flu was caused by a virus at the time. So that's all we had. We knew what social distancing was and how to do it, except some places implemented social distancing differently than other places. So 
Philadelphia, for example, is notorious for having not implemented social distancing very well. They didn't at all. In fact, they threw a really crowded parade in the middle of the crisis to boost morale. Um, so, of course, they saw this sharp peak, a sharp peak at their epidemic curve. And as compared with like St. Louis, which implemented social distancing immediately, and they flattened their curve right away. And so there was a huge difference in the number of cases and deaths in those two cities. By the way, I want to mention the Spanish flu was a year and a half pandemic and people successfully isolated for several months with no Netflix. So it's totally possible to do. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, HIV, it's very different in transmission, but it can be compared because it did take us by surprise um, in 1981. And Nobody knew how it was transmitted at first, so that required what we call shoe leather epidemiology to trace contacts and figure out uh, the root cause. There's still no vaccine, of course, for HIV, so the result of that was learning more about behavioral prevention and testing and treatment and what we call treatment as prevention, where the antivirals are used to reduce transmission. And then we have our coronaviruses, right? We have SARS that emerged in 2002, and that's also a coronavirus. It's also respiratory, but it's much more deadly than COVID-19. And they had a, a fatality rate of about 9%. That was that spread through Asia, most, but it was contained really quickly. Um, before even a thousand people died, they contained SARS. And they were able to do that through isolation of sick and, uh, and they identified antiviral treatments and the virus itself weakened. Then Let's see, we had H1N1 in 2009. Uh, So that was the next big one. That one was a big killer. That one killed hundreds of thousands of people around the world. And that was a flu, like the Spanish flu. And we developed a vaccine for that one. And then MERS occurred 10 years after SARS. And that was another coronavirus. That was the most deadly. A third of the people with MERS died. And those were contained to the Middle East. I think there were only two cases in the U.S. And that one was also controlled by antivirals mostly and through isolation of the sick. So all of these, we've had so many, these are multiple pandemics, in a, even in our lifetime. Um, so even though this is big, this is widespread, it's also less deadly. So some of the lessons are, of course, first social distancing, which we've talked about, and isolating the sick. That's the first response. We have to do that protecting our vulnerable when you know who's a vulnerable uh, individual, then obviously they're the first line of, preve- of protection. Pro- protecting the healthcare system um, and the healthcare workers. And then this is really important. I just, att- I just uh, attended a World Health Organization training in the, the last week, um, not there, online, and learned a lot about the communication between government agencies and between governments. And this is something I think that is actually really important. We have to revisit this in the U.S. We have to really sort of dust off our playbook when it comes to communication and transparency. Um, So that's just so everyone's on the same page and uh, has the same goals. And then finally, I think this is also an important one. Most of these these viruses that I've mentioned already are what we call zoonoses or they're zoonotic, right? They jump from another animal species to the human species. And so I think that more research needs to be conducted into the impacts of things like live animal markets and livestock management practices and other environmental issues. 
Um, so these are some of the, I think, some important lessons that we, we've learned. So you left me wondering, you mentioned the two other coronaviruses that were relatively recent. So how did those end up getting stopped uh, versus this one that's now spread to the entire world? Well, it's kind of interesting. I know we're probably going to get to this, but because this one's less deadly it's and has a long incubation period, that's kind of problematic with this one. So it spreads more widely. Those were controlled because people, because people died more quickly, in a sense. But also because the virus themselves, they mutated quickly and died out very fast. And antivirals were identified pretty quickly that controlled it. Um, so those were the reasons they, that MERS and SARS were able to be controlled quickly and did not turn into the level of pandemic that this is. You have mentioned vaccines. Why does it take so long to develop a vaccine? Well, vaccines can take a really long time. Most, they can take up to 10 years. What we're doing right now in terms of developing a vaccine is really fast, actually. So usually they do take many years. So we're, we're on the fast track right now. There are like several dozen companies right now racing to develop a vaccine with a lot of candidates already being tested in humans. The Chinese actually helped us with this by sequencing the virus's DNA from SARS and giving it, sharing it in a couple months ago so we could uh, give researchers a head start. Out of all the possible candidates, only a few are going to be deemed safe enough uh, for larger scale trials. So these trials take a while. We can't distribute millions of vaccines or billions of vaccines that are unsafe or ineffective so that those require large scale human testing. And that's and that's just part of the process. So once you have some that are viable, then billions of units have to be ma manufactured and distributed. And you have to have policies to make sure that rich countries don't purchase all the supplies before poor countries have access. And then each country has to decide who's going to have access first. So there's a lot involved. So we're actually moving really quickly on this. Um, vaccinologists right now estimate still about a year and a half before it's even possible. Wow. Yeah. And once, I guess this is looking ahead, once immunized, do we know if this is an immunity that would last forever, like maybe the measles or I guess the other immunities that children receive, or is this one that would be like a yearly flu vaccination? Or is it too early to tell? No, it's not, actually. I'm very happy to be able to give good news. Um, <laughs> this is more like the measles or chickenpox. Uh, oh, the vi yeah, the the, so far, we've seen the virus uh, mutate slowly. Looking at the genetic variation between the early emergence in China to now is really minuscule. There's very little variation. So you might only need once or for a few years at most. It's still, it is still too soon to say for sure, but it's looking like it would be more of a one and done. Well, that is good news. It is good news, right? Well, Dr. Atenito, thank you so much for joining us again. We appreciate it. Thank you both. And it's good to talk to both of you. Thank, thank you. What's Happening at FAU Business is part of the FAU College of Business podcast network. Learn more at business.fau.edu slash podcasts.